Welcome to the We Talk Careers podcast, brought to you by Women in ETFs. This is Christine Delano, and I'm thrilled you've joined me. Every week, we'll meet an amazing executive who will share a story about her career and give us some great insight into her success. So if you are pursuing excellence in your own career or intrigued by the hustle required for a career on Wall Street, this podcast is for you. If you haven't yet, please take a moment to subscribe. You can learn more about Women in ETFs and the exchange-traded fund industry at womeninetfs.com. We have a freebie for this episode, our gift to you. You can grab it at christinedelano.com. Find out more about our show, see some behind-the-microphone photos, and get a preview of our upcoming guests on Instagram and LinkedIn. All these links are in the show notes. So... Put aside that massive to-do list and let's get inspired. In this episode, we are talking to Kathleen Moriarty about imposter syndrome. Kathleen is a senior counsel in the law firm of Chapman and Cutler. She is a securities lawyer specializing in exchange-traded products and fintech. Kathleen is regularly quoted in the media about issues from financial indexes to ETFs to crypto. Kathleen is a member of the New York City Bar Association's Investment Management Regulation Committee and the NASDAQ Quality of Markets Committee. She received her bachelor's from Smith College and her law degree from Notre Dame. Amongst other awards, she is the recipient of the first ETF.com Lifetime Achievement Award. Kathleen grew up in Manhattan, but I want to note she spent 10 summers at an all-girls camp in Maine, my home state as both camper and counselor. She just celebrated 40 years of marriage to her husband that she met in law school. Knowing Kathleen's background, as well as the other guests we've had on this podcast, it's hard to believe that she or any of them could feel any familiarity with imposter syndrome. Whether there is any basis for the feeling, like an imposter, most of us have had these moments or even seasons where our success feels illegitimate or we feel inadequate to our own efforts. So I am thrilled to welcome Kathleen to the show and have her take us through her antidotes to imposter syndrome. Welcome, Kathleen. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so happy to have you. Um, I really can't think of a better person to, to tackle this um, based on your background and the fact that illegitimate or not, there's just times where we just feel inadequate. So take us through a time in your life when you started to recognize and maybe even suffer through a little bit of imposter syndrome. Sure. And what I'll do is I'll, uh, I, ha I have two sort of categories of imposter syndrome. Oh, one, great. Is, one is what I would call the true imposter syndrome, where you in fact are an imposter. And mm. then the other is an imagined imposter, which is I think more what you're talking about. And I think many, many women suffer from it. Uh, I don't think men suffer from it so much. Um, okay. <laughs> but that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> right. But, but the, the true imposter situation I was thinking about was when I first started practicing law, I hadn't even been admitted to the bar. So I was a baby, baby lawyer. And I was put on a, a, a deal, I mean, not a deal, I was put on an account. It was a very large account for my firm. I was put on as a junior lawyer, which was fine. And I was beginning to learn about it. And the senior lawyer left after mm. four months. <laughs> and mm. the partner made me the senior lawyer, except that the client knew I wasn't a senior lawyer. I was a baby lawyer. So <laughs> I really was an imposter because I knew nothing 
about the subject. It was something that had not been taught at law school. And actually, ironically, it ended up being the substance of what got me into ETFs, UITs, mm. Unit Investment Trust. But I knew nothing right. about Unit Investment Trust. I knew nothing about the Investment Company Act of 1940. I knew nothing <laughs> about equity securities because I was training to be a bond lawyer. Mm. So the client would call me up and ask me questions, which I didn't know the answer to. And he was very, very impatient. And he wouldn't want to wait for the answer. So he would stay on the line. So what I would do would be, I'd say, oh, Bob, Don, that senior partner, Don needs to speak to me for a second. Can I put you on hold? I would put him on hold. And then the librarian and I had contrived to move all of the relevant books into my office. Because of course, there was no internet in 1980. And so I would flip through these books, I would flip through the table of contents, I would flip until I would find the answer. And then I'd (laughs) take him back offline and say, Oh, Bob, the answer is, you know, X. And if I couldn't do that, if it's, you know, if it was too complicated to do that, I would make some other excuse, you know, and call him back and then frantically do the research. And it was really, 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 really upsetting. Yes, (laughs) Um, I I lost, I lost, I don't know how many months of sleep doing this. But I eventually learned what I was doing by doing this. And then, of course, I would do a lot of research on my own, you know, on my own time. I would find out that there were more books and I would read more books and I would find people who knew something about it and I would talk to them. And so slowly I would, you know, slowly I learned what I needed to learn. But in the beginning, I was an imposter. I didn't know what I was talking about. And it was terrifying. Did he grow in his empathy towards you? I mean, it, did it did it become a better relationship or was he still pretty hostile <laughs> through it's, it? It's funny you say that. Bob was an incredibly angry person. And, and mm. eventually he was at a big, big major brokerage firm. And um, eventually his firm sent him to anger management because <sighs> he was so angry. And he was so angry that sometimes when we'd be in meetings, he would take off his glasses and he would throw them at me. Um <sighs> you know, to miss. I mean, he would miss me. Right, but right, right. scarcely. And he would fire me. And the first time he <laughs> fired me, you know, I thought it was for real, obviously. So I went into my senior partner's office in the early morning to catch him before anybody else. So I could tell him that I had lost like the firm's 10th largest client. And when I told him this, he laughed and he said, oh, Bob oh, wow. fires people all the time. <laughs> I was like, Oh, okay. I had law. I had got you know lost all sleep. I was hysterical. Um, and when he re- retired, when he retired, oh, he said goodness. to me he thought he had fired me more than anybody else. Oh, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's a great distinction. Oh my goodness. So I think there's all of us who have been in the industry for a while know a Bob, right? You know, they're just. They're just people like that. Um, right. And, but at the same time, you know, trying to always look at the you know, optimistic view on hindsight, it did convey you into a whole lot of knowledge and from UITs and to ETFs and to crypto and to all the things. I mean, you had to learn a way of gaining knowledge and being able to apply that knowledge into wisdom pretty quickly. That's right. That That's right. And I, I was lucky in that regard. I, I don't have too many skills, but that is a skill. I'm a good student and I'm an eager researcher. So I'm always, you know, even if I'm being interviewed for something I know, like you'll laugh, but this morning I reread my notes three times about this, even though it's about me and I know 
I know what it is just because, you know, that's the way I cope with wanting to make sure I know what I'm talking about. So, right. um, yes, you're right. That was a kind of a plunge by fire, but it was, it was the sort of the setup for what I would do in the future. Right. And so that's your sort of experience through being somewhat of a true imposter, meaning that you hadn't really gained what you needed in order to perform the job. But take us through the Imagine imposter that you introduced um, earlier. Well, you have to fast forward 25 years. Mm. And um, I had accompanied a couple of people to Turkey because we were working on a Turkish ETF. And we were, we were going to we were going to launch the uh, ETF at that time. So we were there for the launch party and all the festivities and a bunch of other things. And I had been to many launch parties and, you know, they're fun. And so but this was something completely out of like the Arabian Nights. It was in a major and historic Istanbul hotel, you know, mm. that had like Baccarat balustrades for the um, Mm. staircase and, you know, these huge crystal chandeliers and everybody was in black tie and the women were wearing these unbelievable jewels. I mean, the kinds of things I would only see in Tiffany's in, you know, in the windows kind of thing. Right. (laughs) And I'm wearing a suit, you know, right? Because I'm a lawyer Mm. and everybody else is this glamorous, what have you. And there are all these Turkish reporters from major newspapers. This is a really huge deal. And they, they wanted to interview me. And um, I also had to give a speech. So I thought to myself as I was standing on the podium, you know, what am I going to say to these people? I mean, these women could care less about ETFs, I'm sure. And, you know, they're so elegant and they're so whatever. And then I thought, wait a minute, I know more about ETFs than they do. Um, that may be because they know nothing, but nevertheless, <laughs> I know more than they do. So I have something to say to them and I can't just be frozen up here. I will look like an idiot if I, you know, if I do that. So I just started talking about what I knew about, you know, which was how we started out with the ETFs and, and, you know, how it had come to Turkey and how we had worked with the Turkish regulatory advisors. And the more I talked about it, you know, the more relaxed I became, and the more I realized that, yes, I did know what I was talking about. And then similarly, afterwards, all these reporters wanted to talk to me. And I mean, I was used to talking to reporters, but on the phone, you know, not with a microphone in your, you know, not like on TV kind of thing. And um, one of them had gotten permission to go to a historic Hammam, which is the, you know, the the hot and cold bathing places that they had in those days. And it was, he got them to unlock it. And we were in there and it was beautiful. It was all carved marble and these, you know, velvet couches. And, and again, I felt like, you know, what am I doing here? You know, but Mm -hmm. the more we talked about it, the more I realized, yes, you know, I, I did know what I was talking about. And you know, and, and he wasn't there to test me. He was there because he was interested. And so instead of right. looking at him like a combatant, you know, I looked at him more as a, just an interested person who wanted to hear a story. Right. Because as much as all of that was exotic to you, you were probably pretty exotic to him and to the people wanting to talk to you, right? Well, that's probably right. I mean, they probably hadn't run into a lot of women lawyers in suits. Who were- right. <laughs> who knew so much and could command an audience like that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sure you were very unique in their experience. 
yeah, it, it was funny. And, and by the end of the evening, I had a wonderful time. But, you know, I really had gone in with enormous trepidation. And, you know, it was only really, really just thinking about what I knew about and thinking, you know, thinking that it was it was my experience. I did know what I was talking about. Mm. And I would have to remind myself of that, you know. Right. So it was really a mindset of reminding yourself and feeling confident in your own experience that you didn't have in your first story, right? That's and, right. In this story, there's 25 years of background and knowledge and, and experience that you could bring, right? That's right. So it, it, yeah. So in that case, it really was an imagined imposter. I really did know what I was talking about, right? And I really did have something to contribute. But you know, I don't know if you're a big fairy tale reader. I am, and there are many fairy tales where there's some quest or some, you know, thing that people have to go through. And sometimes part of it is going through obstacles that appear to be physical, you know, like walls or doors or whatever. And they seem impossible to, to open or to get through. And what you have to realize is they're not real. They're mm. just imaginary. And then you can make them go away in your mind. And then you go on to the next phase. And so I, that's the way I think about imagined imposter. There are these imagined problems or issues that you have. They're not real. Right. They're just something that comes up maybe because of your background or maybe because you were taught that, you know, women don't really know what they're talking about or, <laughs> you know, any number of things. But, but yes. they're imaginary and they, and they vanish if you look at them that way. Right. I'm a writer and I love to tell story. And I, I love, you know, just sort of more gripping psychological sort of fiction. But often in sort of my training, it's been like there is an antagonist. But yes. to me, often in my own stories, the antagonist is internal, right? The antagonist is some some belief system that needs to be changed or some valuing or reprioritization within the life or some belief of others that um, needs to undergo a, you know, a metamorphosis through a journey, right? And so right. it's it's sort of that same thing of understanding that that antagonist sometimes lives inside of us, That's <laughs> you right. know, and, and we need to, we need to tell it what's what sometimes. Yeah, that's right. I yes. mean, I think it, I think it does function in a way for the good, in that it, it does make you look at whatever the issue is, and, and learn about it and not be an imposter. So as a prod, it's a good thing. But mm. as a, you know, reality, it's a bad thing. Right. So talk to us a little bit more about that prod. So if we can try to find ways that something like imposter syndrome, which can sometimes sneak up upon us and put a great deal of stress and anxiety into our life, if we can twist that a little bit, how do we overcome the negative thoughts that surround imposter syndrome? I, you know, I, I think people do it differently. I think people have different, different techniques. I mean, my techniques, you know, are the ones that ended up working for me. So always my first technique is study mm. the issue. Now that may not be possible because it may be that it comes up just randomly in a conversation or something where somebody asks you some question you don't know the answer to. But generally speaking, in a business context, in my case, it comes up where I'm supposed to be speaking or writing or, you know, talking about some topic. So the first line of defense is, is research and study. Can I pause you there? Because I think you said a really important thing, too, uh, along with the study piece, which is sometimes we are asked about things that we don't know. 
and admitting that we don't know, right? Admitting that, you know, with perhaps even our vast experience or, you know, our wealth of knowledge in a certain subject, there are going to be things that we don't. And being okay with saying that, you know, being okay with getting back with an answer or, you know, asking someone else to, to step in. Don't you think that that helps as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think the older I get, the more I say, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but but you're right. You usually say, you know, gee, I, I don't know the answer to that question, but let me look into it and get back to you. Or XYZ, who's standing here, I know that he or she knows the answer. Right. It's not right. it's not bad to acknowledge that you don't know something. Um, it's only bad to acknowledge that you don't know anything. But. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Okay. So how? what are some of your other techniques? Well, then some of the techniques I kind of repeat to myself, you know, you know this, remember when you did or when you spoke or when you, you know, wrote or when you had a meeting with XYZ, you do know this. And, you know, you, you remember it. And so this is just, you know, something that is not a problem. So I sort of repeat that to myself. Mm. And then I do do that thing with the fairy tale doors. I say, this is Mm. not really an issue. This is not a problem because you do know it. Or maybe the question that's being asked is kind of an open-ended question, and they're asking you just to think about it rather than to give it, you know, an, a firm answer. Maybe they're right. just asking you, "What do you think about this?" Yeah. And you know, you have opinions. You can say what you think about it, even if it's not necessarily the quote-unquote right answer. Yes. So listen to the question carefully. Maybe it's not so, you know, hostile. Right. You know, maybe it's just asking for information. So I, you know, I, I do that. And then I certainly, you know, behind the scenes, I also rely a lot on people. As I've gone through my practice further in life, I've, I've met more people and I've cultivated people who, you know, who know the answers to things I don't know. And then you know, I call them and I say, you know, sorry to bother you, but, you know, do you have a clue as to what this might be about? And, and they do the same for me. And so it's kind of a support system that's been very helpful over the years to do that. And then, of course, again, on the kind of the research side, I attend a lot of conferences and, you know, listen to podcasts and just just try to soak up information about the particular topics that I'm responsible for or interested in or what have you. Right. And, you know, I guess my ultimate mantra is if you don't know it, you can learn it. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, you, if you don't know it, that isn't the end of the world. You can learn it. And that was certainly the case with Bitcoin. When, you know, when I was first exposed to Bitcoin, I'm like, oh, my God, there is no <laughs> way I can you know, understand this. I'm really bad at math and, you know, I'm just not going to get it. And I thought, wait, you know, just keep at it. You know, you'll, you'll get it. <laughs> Right. I'd love to dive into that. First, though, I want you to take us back one more time into the into your baby lawyer <laughs> example, because I was just thinking while you were talking about sort of the importance of research, the importance of, you know, I don't know it, but I don't know it yet sort of scenario. But what advice do you have for maybe some younger folks in their career who are put into that situation. I mean, I have a lot of admiration for you that, you know, you took over from a junior to a senior level lawyer in that very heated time of, you know, learning about UITs and learning about this industry. But do you have other advice? I mean, would you recommend that someone push back 
on a situation that puts him into a place of sort of being a, a true imposter? Well, in the in the particular in my particular case, there wasn't any other alternative because mm. the guy who left was the only one. Well, the senior partner knew stuff, but aside from him, the <laughs> only other person who knew it was the person who left. So okay. it was kind of and. You also have to remember, it was 1980. Yes, there were women lawyers, but there were very few women partners in those days. Women were still unusual on Wall Street. And Don, my partner, was kind of a sadist. <laughs> um, he, you know, he, he was definitely a misogynist. And mm. I think this was a big test for me by him. Yep. And I think I knew that. And I was just going to be damned if he was going to beat me to, you know, forcing me into saying I can't do this Don mm. so I think that was the background of what was really going on today if that happened to me if somebody you know I probably would say listen I'm happy to help out and I'm happy to do this but only under the understanding that people don't think I'm the expert and that right. you know I'm learning along with them and I'm not going to be pretending to be somebody that I'm not Right. But that's also after 40 years of experience, you know, I don't know that I would have done that then, even if Don weren't testing me. Right. And I think knowing yourself, you know, knowing what, you know, you feel like you can be capable of and what you want out of it, feeling comfortable pushing back and also feeling comfortable sort of going forward with the challenge that's before you. I, I think really it does come down to, to knowing yourself. So yeah, thank no, you I for the, for that insight in that. I think that's true. I really do think that's true. And, uh, and I've always been a fighter, so <laughs> it kind of <laughs> hit me in the right place, I guess. But I would not recommend it to anybody, that experience to anybody. I used to teach swimming and, and canoeing and small craft, and I used to say to people, you can throw someone into the water and they may be able to sort of figure out a dog paddle to get back to shore and, you know, just about drown doing it. Or you can teach someone how to swim and it can be a lovely experience. <laughs> you know, right. I don't recommend the first. <laughs> I agree. I agree. So take us back to Bitcoin, you know, take us back to, you know, having really established such a, an amazing career based on sort of the products coming out of the 1940 Act. How did you get into Bitcoin and, you know, how have you become such an expert in that area? Well, it was again, it was a question of luck. One of my partners at my firm knew someone who knew someone, you know, it's one of these chain things. And ultimately, they knew the Winklevoss twins. And Tyler and Cameron wanted to create the first Bitcoin ETF. So they were asking mm -hmm. around as to who knew anything about ETFs. And, you know, my name came up. So they came into the firm. Now, I knew virtually, well, I knew something about ETFs. I mean, um, something about Bitcoin, because I had been told that they were going to come in. And so right. I had frantically done my research. Also, I had Because we know that about you. You're going you're gonna to read <laughs> up. <laughs> but I also had a wonderful young associate at the time who knew a great deal about Bitcoin. He was just, he was just personally interested. And he was my associate. He, he knew a great deal about ETFs as well. So the two of us went into this meeting with Tyler and Cameron. And they knew something about ETFs, and so, but they wanted to learn a whole lot more about them. So fortunately, our first meeting, it was really about ETFs and not about Bitcoin, because they knew about Bitcoin. They wanted to mm. know about ETFs, and they were coming to us for that knowledge. 
once we went through that meeting, they decided we did know what we were talking about. And so they retained us. And that's how we got involved. But it was really Greg, my my associate, who who was the lead on that because he really he really knew it from the inside out. He probably knew it better than they did. Right. And he went on. He, we went on together. I think we were together like fifteen years. He became a partner, very very involved with that. And now he's the lawyer for a hedge fund that uh, specializes in uh, crypto. So oh, okay, right. <laughs> makes a lot of sense. It makes yep. a lot of sense. Oh, well, so maybe I'll need to have you back on to, to talk through some of that. That's, uh, that is fascinating to me. So as a matter of this podcast and with our roles on women in ETFs, I've heard from so many young leaders looking to advance and succeed in their careers. And so I, I really love what we've been talking about today. And it's so gratifying to see how this topic could be encouraging to them and helping them to seek new kind of work rhythms and thought patterns of, you know, the type of research and work that goes into, you know, sort of showing up every day and sort of advancing in, in our knowledge. So what other advice do you have for this next generation of leaders that's coming up behind you? Well, you know, it's, it's funny, I was just thinking, I've gone into a number of meetings on a new topic, or maybe on an existing topic, and I'll be the only woman and there'll be maybe four men going in, you know, we're making a presentation. Mm-hmm. And I will have done, you know, my research and the lead guy will say, you know, I really don't know anything about this, but that's not a problem. And, you know, we'll go through the meeting and somehow it won't be a problem either because he'll deflect the important questions or he'll somehow answer them enough to make the person who's asking the question satisfied for the moment, not in depth. And so, you know, there may be a situation or, or a person who's really comfortable just sort of flying in and, you know, answering off the top of their head. Um, mm-hmm. That's not me. But, mm. you know, it might be that, you know, my method isn't great for everyone. It may be that, you know, some people can just pull something like that off. That makes me uncomfortable. But right. And we want our lawyers to be uncomfortable with that. So I appreciate <laughs> that about you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you have to kind of play around and find out where your comfort zone is, you know, and, and it might be what I do, or it might be something else, or it might be, you know, you have a, I've seen guys turn a sort of a business presentation, turn around and sort of become the interrogator to the interrogator, you know, and right. ask them questions. And then the, the entire time of the um, presentation, the, the interrogator has asked the questions right. and they, they've gotten through the, you know, the meeting. Right. So there's more than one way to do it, I think. Yeah. And I think, I think learning through that, I remember the first M&A trip that I went on with a firm early in my career. And, you know, we were looking to, to acquire them. You know, we all sat down with the books. We all, you know, we get the presentation on what it is. I'd done so much of my homework. You know, I, I'm like you. I, you know, really want to dig in, really want to know so much before I sit down with one meeting, if possible. Right. And so I start asking these questions about their business model and their, you know, their growth plans and, you know, how they're capitalized and all these questions of which some of it has been covered 
but just sort of the the basics to get us sort of in the door and whether we're interested, you know, whether we want to sort of submit a letter of intent on, you know, sort of going forward with them. And I thought it was a great conversation. And I am absolutely the most junior person on, you know, my company side in the meeting. And then we go to the first break and uh, the then president sort of pulls me aside and says, you know, Christine, you know, I love all the work you've done. So supportive. It was great. But stop giving it away. <laughs> you know, like um, we don't need them to have ideas about how they can grow. We don't need them to, you know, to, to use what you've got here to, to move forward. We need just to know whether they're, you know, a good fit for us. And it was just this like complete mindset of, wow, you know, having the knowledge doesn't always mean you need to share the knowledge. You know, That's having right. the knowledge really can help you ask the right questions. It can help you show up well. It can help you with a lot of things, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to show how smart you are, or it doesn't mean that you need to sort of give it all away if you're in a situation where withholding some of that information actually helps the process get to where it needs to be. So, you know, I, I feel like that was such a good learning. It was embarrassing to me <laughs> to kind of come oh, back into the meeting and, and realize that everyone on my side knew, you know, like what I had been doing and how I'd sort of hijacked the meeting in the beginning. But it was it was a great it was a great learning for someone my, like me who also likes to be very prepared. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, how long ago was this? Oh, Oh, goodness. 15 years, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I still think I don't know about today, but I still think 15 years ago, there was definitely a pressure for a woman to make it clear that she knew what she was talking about. Mm. You yeah. know, and but there was a reason why I had a seat at that table. Yes. Absolutely. Yes, no. I think I think so. And I mean, I think your your superior was right. But I'm just saying, I think that was a motivating factor. Yes, and absolutely. I don't know if young women today feel so much that pressure. I hope not. I know. Um, but I do know that, you know, anyone coming up, it's, you know, it's daunting to look, I think, at a career, you know, mentoring, you know, women and, and men in their careers now. It's, it, you know, it's it's a lot to tackle. And you look at the few leaders at the top and how to emulate them and, and things like that. So I think hearing these kind of stories, you know, what you've been able to share today helps people sort of put themselves into a situation and say, is that me? You know, could that help? Could I be thinking differently? Differently, you know, should I try this new hat to see if I can grow in that direction? So mm -hmm. that's why I'm loving these these podcasts is being exposed to different ways to think about things that are pretty universal, I think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I also think now that you mention it, you know, you can learn from meetings. Mm. You know, you, you learn from the questions other people are asking and, and how they're asking and how they phrase them and how they introduce them. And you can learn a lot from that. Yes, absolutely. I can't believe how the time has flown by. <laughs> I just <laughs> sort of glanced down. Um, so always to my last question, I am both a voracious writer and reader. I think ideas are fuel if that's not come across on the podcast so far. Um, so my question to you is what book have you read recently that inspired you? Well, I'm, I mentioned that I like fairy tales mm. and I also like, I also like fables. Mm. So every so often I take this book out and read it, and I, I just reread it about three weeks ago. And it's a book called Momo by Michael Ende, who I believe is a German writer, but I'm not sure. And it's, it's in translation into English. This is new to me. Wow. Okay, yes. Tell me about it. Not a long book, but it's a fable about a, a little sleepy town in Italy 
it probably takes place. It does. The time is not specified, but you figure maybe it was like in the fifties, maybe. And this little girl who doesn't seem to have any parents or any friends or any relations comes to this little sleepy town in Italy, and she makes a home in an old ruined amphitheater. And lots of kids come to play there, and she becomes friends with lots of kids, and she's a wonderful storyteller, and everybody loves her, and everybody's really happy. And then one day, these sort of mysterious people come into town, and they're they're like bankers. They wear bowler hats and, you know, mm-hmm. wingtip shoes and what have you. And it turns out that what they are are time bandits. And what they're doing is they're taking people's time. And they're stealing it and they're saving it for themselves. Mm. And it's a fable about what happens to you when you become too busy to have any time for yourself. Mm. And um, I won't tell you the end, but it's, it's, it's a wonderful story. And I read it every so often to remind myself that, you know, we only have a limited amount of time on Earth. And it is a treasure and we should use it wisely and we should not work all the time and not research all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And it's very accessible and it's a lovely book. Oh, I so appreciate this recommendation. I'm really enjoying this this question because it's so eclectic, the list that we are creating for just stories and books that can transport us. And uh, I love it. Thank you. That link will be in the show notes for this. I was just going to say, here's the other one. Here's the other one I'm now reading, which is fascinating, which is Meryl Streep's biography up until the point she becomes an Oscar winner. Hmm. It's really, really good and really accessible. Great. I will write that down as well and put that in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you, Kathleen. I think we've had an honest look at imposter syndrome and how we might see ourselves, but how that vision can change um, through some really good devices, not only preparation, but just a change of mindset. So thank you. Thank you for joining me on the show. Thank you, Christine. It was wonderful. And thank you, our listeners, for spending your time with us. I hope this is not just information, but you'll let it be transformational in how you think about your confidence and your preparation. I'm rooting for you. And once again, I'd like to remind you to go to womeninetfs.com to find out more about diversity, opportunity, and events in the exchange-traded fund industry. Please also check out this episode's freebie where I've listed some methods to overcome the negative thoughts associated with imposter syndrome. You'll find it at christinedelano.com. If you haven't subscribed, please make sure you do so. We have a season of incredible guests. Don't miss out. And if there's a topic you'd like to hear us tackle, please let me know. All links are in the show notes. Thank you for listening.